Hi, um, thank you so much for joining us for part three of Courageous Community. Uh, thanks for listening, I should say, because <clears throat> in the interest of full disclosure, this is a recording. Uh, I'm not speaking to you live from Sunday at Dollar Tree Clue, um, because for annoying reasons, we weren't able to capture the, um, the audio of the day. But that's probably better news, actually. Um, I'm excited to be recording this straight into the podcast form for listeners out there, because um, I discovered much to my dismay yesterday that Burn, my wife, routinely listens to the recordings of Sundays on half speed. Anyway, I think I get far too excited live. Um, and so this is good. This means that you'll actually be able to hear me speaking normally instead of if you have to do what Burn does, slowing me down into some sort of semi-odd version of myself. She would say retarded version. <laughs> I don't know how I sound at half speed. But anyway, uh, I'm excited to think that you can listen to me at normal speed. Um, I am sitting at, at the desk that my dad used to write sermons at long ago. Uh, it's an heirloom that sits in my house at the end of a long Monday. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to try and catch you up on what went down on Sunday. I think it was a really important day for our church. And, um, and I'm also hoping you're having the opportunity to listen to this part three of the sermon series in time to get to the Get Filled evening that we're going to be having as a church on Wednesday the 29th uh, at the Country Club. But regardless of that, uh, we've got good things to talk about um, because I think the stuff we're discussing now uh, at this part of the sermon series, well, I've been looking forward to preaching this sermon since uh, September or October last year. Um, this is, for me, the kind of the, the point of doing the whole sermon series is to get the opportunity to speak about this and getting an accurate conception of the subject matter for today, the Holy Spirit, uh, ha having an accurate set of ideas about him, I think makes or breaks whether we experience God at all. Um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that your interaction with God, your ability to sense him, know any kind of intimacy with him, have a relationship with him at all, hinges on whether or not we have the right picture of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and to get us sort of going, um, I remember watching not that long ago a documentary, a really well-made documentary of the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, I know everyone has strong feelings about O.J. Simpson, and in fact it's a matter of legal record that the dude was guilty. Um, he was found guilty in a civil case despite getting away with it on the criminal front. Um, and despite the fact that he was guilty, he still somehow uh, survived that first trial. And it's a, I mean, it's a horror story, really, of how justice could be miscarried. But it's a fascinating watch, um, that, that documentary on Netflix. Um, and I'm struck by a moment uh, I can remember when O.J. Simpson, you know, this formerly charismatic, magnetic, former athlete, now economic powerhouse, actor, socialite, um, really confident guy, um, is in trouble. The, the case has been made against him, the you know, trial is just starting to get up and running. And he, he's a shadow of him, of his former self. He's a, he's a shell, you know, he's a glithering idiot, really, whining and moaning and feeling sorry for himself and looking slouched and haunted. And then a new lawyer joins the team, uh, a really potent lawyer. And, um, and there's a moment when he's alone with OJ in the cell without the rest of the legal team. Uh, and kind of grabs him by the shoulders and just gives him a, you know, just dispels out some home truths to him and, and really calls him to remember who he is. Uh, and I know the inspirational value of the scene is lost now because no one really likes O.J. Simpson. But it's this amazing moment where, where this new lawyer arrives with new ideas, a new plan. Um, 
and breathes confidence into OJ. Tells him, sit up, you know, t- take yourself a bit more seriously. Stop moaning and, and whining. We're going to win. And, um, and lays out this new plan, lays out this new um, way of carrying himself. And where before defeat had seemed inevitable, um, with this new legal counsel, victory seems possible and it turns out is possible. Um, where before OJ was cowering and, and wheedling and whining, suddenly he sort of squares his shoulders, lifts his chin, sets his jaw, uh, and confidence and courage flows back into him. And that's an amazing moment. That's a really powerful moment. And it gets me thinking about the term that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit in the first place. Uh, throughout John 14, 15, and 16, uh, we can hear Jesus describing who this Holy Spirit is going to be that he's going to send in his stead when he leaves and why it's actually better news for us that Jesus goes so that the Holy Spirit can come. And the word that Jesus uses, the, uh, the Greek term, is the paraclete. Uh, so you'll see it in your English Bible translated as the helper or counselor. But paraclete's the term, and that's not a spiritual term, that's a legal term, the legal term for legal aid or counselor. And if you can imagine yourself afraid, staring down the barrel of, of certain defeat, and then a potent legal aid comes to your side with a new plan where there's victory, you're staring down the barrel of victory instead of defeat, you <clears throat> are encouraged, you know, made courageous, um, and have someone who's going to stand alongside you and, and infuse you with new ideas and new strength. That's what Jesus is describing the Holy Spirit as being like. Um, and it's no exaggeration to say that that's what the Holy Spirit does and started doing from the word go, if I can tell you another story. It's, um, it's the first few days and weeks after Jesus has ascended after the resurrection, despite having seen Jesus walk on water, multiply food, drive out demons, be resurrected for goodness sake. When Jesus leaves, the disciples are, I suppose, much like O.J. Simpson, a group of brothering idiots, really. They're hiding. They're afraid. They're hoping no one finds them. The rulers and elders of the Jewish people in that day are, I suppose, understandably trying to quickly quash this new religion and any news of this empty tomb and missing body needs to be hushed up as fast as possible. And so the disciples feel persecuted. They're hunted uh, or feel hunted in that moment, and they're not wrong. And so they are without any courage. They are not impressive people in that moment. And then something goes on. Something changes them totally. Um, They describe it as the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the scene. And then the next thing you see them doing is they heal someone who they have no business healing. Um, They get called to account for it. And Peter and John get brought before the rulers. And this is what Peter stands up and says. It's just amazing. I'm going to read to you from Acts 4. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. So he addresses them head on. If we've been called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. And this flows on into a preach that Peter does on the steps of the temple and loads and loads and loads of people are convinced by what he's about to say and get saved. So he's really addressing the ruling class of the Jewish people and all the people of Israel. So this is, this is what Peter goes on to say. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and then he quotes the prophet, the stone you build is rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which they must be saved. 
Now, the reaction to what Peter has to say is amazing. So the, uh, the writer records that um, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But then they couldn't arrest them or do anything about it because standing in their midst was the guy that they just healed. So what's gone on? These guys were afraid um, and, and cowering and had no confidence to speak of. No, they weren't powerful people. And then these ordinary men and women are suddenly catalyzed into taking on the rulers of the day. And let's be clear, they really were taking on the rulers of the day. That, that opening salvo from Peter where he stands up and says, rulers and elders of the people, you don't just take on the rulers and elders uh, willy-nilly. Um, they had a huge amount of power at that time. If you're going to take on the rulers and elders um, and be considered a heretic or a persona non grata or a disturber of the peace, for starters, you, you could be expelled from the synagogue. You could expect that. And being expelled from the synagogue is not just an inconvenience. In, in Jewish life, that was, of course, your spiritual network, but that means it was also your social network, your business network, very importantly. Um, and so to lose your standing in that community and to be, to, to be outlawed or, or, or excommunicated um, by the rulers and elders was a a career-threatening decision to make. Uh, and Peter just takes them on. Ordinary, unschooled dude takes on the, the, the most intimidating um, legal, spiritual, and sort of social power brokers of the time. And he doesn't just address them. He then accuses them. He calls them out. He, he quotes scripture at them. He says, this Jesus you crucified is the one in whose name we've just done this healing. That's amazing. That's a really incredible bit of courage. And in this sermon series, we've been talking about becoming a community of courage. Um, and we've been talking about how all the great feats achieved by mountain climbers like Edmund Hillary and polar explorers like, like Scott and, and, and anyone who's really done anything amazing ends up creating a hugely inspirational team of, of experts around them who are just as brave, if not braver. Um, but we're not going to return into a community like that just by trying to cherry-pick the most impressive-looking, normal people we can find. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to really infuse us in the way that the Holy Spirit infused this group. But that's not the only thing that they did. They didn't only take on the religious rulers. Um, I'm going to quote to you what Augustus Caesar is quoted as having said in that time. This is the sitting Caesar at the time, the ruler of the known world, the most powerful man uh, in the, on earth as far as Peter could have known. Um, this is what Augustus had to say. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. No wonder the next line after Peter is basically quoting Augustus but saying it of Jesus. The next line is, when they saw the courage of Peter and John they, and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished. Because if you re remember, Peter says salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind but Jesus. So he's taking on his social setting. He's taking on his economic setting. He's taking on his religious setting. He's in fact also taking on essentially the, you know, Donald Trump or something like that. You know, taking on, imagine picking a recent Donald Trump tweet and saying what he's saying about himself is actually true of Jesus and no one alone um, with no guarantees that this ruler is going to be kind or, or look favorably on this stuff you're claiming. This was an incredible about turn from these 
these timid, terrified people. And that's clearly got to be put down to something. Something needs to explain that change. Uh, and they believed that it was the Holy Spirit that did it. And there is good reason to think that they were right. Um, because if we were to go back to John, particularly chapter 15, and you're welcome to pause this podcast and check verse 26, um, Jesus describes that what the Holy Spirit is always going to do, first and foremost, the thing the Holy Spirit loves to do above all else is to glorify the Son. That the Holy Spirit will testify of me, says Jesus, that this is what the Holy Spirit is going to talk about loads. If you are excited to talk about Jesus, you're going to enjoy spending time with the Holy Spirit because that's all the Holy Spirit wants to speak about. And um, J.R. Packer describes it as like a floodlight, um, that a floodlight doesn't exist to draw attention to itself. Of course not. In fact, when floodlighting is done well, you can barely see the source of the light. But what you do see is what's being illuminated. Uh, the floodlight shines up on if it's a bridge or some beautiful piece of architecture or the Golden Gate Cliffs in Clarence or anywhere that you can think of where floodlighting has been done well. What happens is that that floodlight illuminates the thing it's aiming at to the point where everything around it becomes insignificant. In fact, the floodlight obviously doesn't do anything to reduce the illumination of everything else. Had it not been for the floodlight, you'd probably see everything else in the scene fairly clearly. But when the floodlight's on, all you can see is the thing that it's aiming at. That becomes brilliant and vivid. And, and we'll see later, equally importantly, everything else fades and becomes dim and uninteresting. That's what the Holy Spirit is longing to do about Jesus. And so it would make sense then that if it's the Holy Spirit that's caused the courage in these guys to stand up and take on the rulers and elders and Caesars, that all that they seem to be able to do is talk about Jesus. It's Jesus' name that we did this by. The one you crucified is the one who is the cornerstone, the most important piece of the puzzle. They go on and on and on about giving all credit that they can to Jesus. That's a hallmark of the Holy Spirit being at work. And um, it's fascinating to me how what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is very much the same. You know, Scripture says that this whole story about Jesus doesn't even really make sense to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. This Reading the Bible is going to seem complicated and confusing. The stuff about all these stories about God and Jesus are going to seem, I suppose, vaguely attractive, but they're not going to resonate. They're not going to be convincing um, until the Holy Spirit illuminates them for you. Uh, that's a really important idea, that you can't just drum it up, just force yourself to believe these truths. Uh, they are in some way murky until the Holy Spirit illuminates them. And suddenly you get it, and it becomes clear. The contrast gets turned up. Um, you know, when I'm filling milk bottles for my little two-year-old son, David, um, we've got these ancient milk bottles that are, uh, you know, a little faded and, and grim, and they've got um, probably not as hygienic as they should be, and they've got maroon lettering on them um, to tell you the numbers, uh, the, you know, how many mils you've put in. And I'm under strict instruction um, to put 200 mils of milk and to add hot water, whatever. This is not particularly interesting to you, I'm sure. But what is interesting is that those maroon letters on the kind of opaque bottle are basically invisible until I start to pour milk in. And so it's always a bit of an act of faith, actually. I begin pouring milk into a bottle that I have no idea where the line is that I'm pouring to. But the second there's white milk in this bottle, then by contrast, those maroon letters are suddenly very easy to see. Uh, and I you know, can hit the 200 mark perfectly every time. And um, this is what the Holy Spirit loves to do, is to cause the message of Jesus to, 
to snap into sharp focus, to be illuminated to the point where everything else fades into the background, to become vivid and convincing. And that's certainly what happens here, because Peter starts speaking. Not only is he given great courage by the Holy Spirit, who always is going to give you courage, just like any legal aid would, that the Holy Spirit loves to speak about Jesus, and in the process will cause courage to rise inside you. Um, But then as they speak, with clarity about Jesus, the other thing that the Holy Spirit does is he actually empowers it because it's all very well to say, well, Peter spoke bravely and spoke clearly. Um, and perhaps the people who were listening had really open minds and really fertile hearts. Maybe, maybe conditions were perfect. That still wouldn't explain the response. 3000 people getting saved when it was such a dangerous thing to do where it was so, well, yeah, career limiting, I suppose, for everyone else as well to to defy the authorities of the day. No, there's got to be more to this. And that's the other thing we can be excited about. Not only will the Holy Spirit give you courage, not only will the Holy Spirit make things clear to you, but the Holy Spirit will also be convincing on your behalf, add fruit that far beyond the efforts um, of the person being filled with the Holy Spirit and working under the influence of the Holy Spirit could possibly expect. Now, it's also really important to say um, that the Holy Spirit is a person. So if we're thinking about how this might apply to us, if we're going to be a community of courage, um, if we're going to have our versions of this Peter moment where, or the O.J. Simpson moment going from, from uncertainty, doubt, insecurity, or timidity to this courage and this clarity, um, and if we're hoping to see the incredible power that backs that up, that we see in, in the life of Peter and the early apostles who then also, you know, experienced the Holy Spirit causing healing through them and etc. Then how on earth do you go about being filled with him? Because that's how it begins in verse 8 of Acts 4. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And we are about to hit, I think, one of the huge misunderstandings in the modern church and possibly one of the m- most simple limiting factors on why many Christians are skeptical of the Holy Spirit, experience very little of the Holy Spirit's power. And it's going to sound almost basic in its simplicity, but the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a a member of the Trinity. This is a person. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. But you can see why you would make the mistake of thinking that the Holy Spirit is some kind of force, some kind of wattage that you can turn up, something that you can ring down from the bridge and ask Scotty to, you know, beam up more power. Um, Because we're talking about being filled with him. And your first assumption, I suppose, would be if you're going to fill something, uh, you're going to fill a vessel with a liquid, with a current. You're going to, you're going to, it's going to be some kind of inanimate object that you can speak of in terms of volume. How do you speak about a person in terms of volume? Um, How do you speak about being filled with someone? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, Because the truth is, if you're going to be filled with a person, that has much less to do with assuming the right position, clenching your fists, screwing up your eyes, kind of calling for God to, you know, turn the taps on or crank up the voltage. You know, no wonder people feel skeptical about that. That sounds all kind of weird and mystical and and unnatural and, and very hard to to get your head around. No, we're talking about being filled with a person. And to be filled with a person, you aren't actually asking for more of them. You either have them or you don't. A person is either there or they're not. A person's either in the room or they're not in the room. 
No, to be filled with a person, essentially what we're talking about, is giving more of yourself to them, not getting more of them, is making more of your heart available to them, is giving them more influence in your life, is to be filled with a person is to say, I'm going to attend to you more. I'm going to create more space in my life for you. And your needs, your interests, your loves, your hates are going to influence what my loves and hates and attention um, is going to be. The story I've, I've heard Tim Keller use on this topic is of some artist, I don't know if this is true or apocryphal, but some artist who, you know, having got engaged and fallen in love with, with someone, was finding ways to insert her into every picture, even if it was, you know, he'd been... Um, hired to paint a picture of somebody else, some, some patron. Um, the, if you look carefully, you'd find his fiance kind of hanging around in the background, you know, early version of photo bombing, or, you know, if it's supposed to be a landscape, or so the issue is kind of peeking out from behind a rock or something. He was so filled with her that she had to be in everything he was doing uh, for him to be satisfied with it. I suppose that is a much more helpful way to think about being filled with the Holy Spirit than to think about some force, some current, some liquid, some inanimate hocus-pocus thing that, that you just need to sweep you away more or, or kind of zap through your veins to some greater extent. Um, yeah, no wonder Christians are a little skeptical of that. And I suspect often we're just praying the wrong prayers. We're saying, you know, God, please, please turn up the wick, please, you know, more of the Holy Spirit, more of the Holy Spirit, and not really understanding that actually what we're saying is, Holy Spirit, I'd like you to have more access to my life. Um, help me, tell me what you need, explain to me how to make more space for you in my life. That is what being filled with the Holy Spirit is, is about. Um, and so this is what goes on for Peter, I believe, when it starts by saying he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, then all this clarity and conviction and most importantly, power and courage flows through him and th into the thing that he's trying to do in that moment and causes an incredible amount of fruit. Of course, not everyone was convinced. If you remember the story of, of Pentecost and that first amazingly famous preach um, that, that Peter shared, some weren't convinced. And I'm not sure if you remember that the, the onlookers who weren't buying what was going on knew something was going on. It was clear to them that, that something was up. But they figured, oh, well, I mean, the only thing we can pull on, the only experience we've got to describe what we're seeing is to say that these people must be drunk. And Peter goes, well, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, um, thus proving that he doesn't come from the bluff um, and can't think of, of anything more strange than people being drunk at that time. Cheap shot, sorry. But the, uh, the point being, they weren't drunk, and yet onlookers were able to make that mistake, for sure. They were probably watching with an uncharitable lens. Um, but there was something there that made them decide to accuse these people of being drunk. And Paul, who wasn't there himself, would have heard the story. I'm sure the early church told the story of that first amazing day over and over. And Paul would have been aware, of course, <clears throat> of what the accusation was, because at the time he was on the side of those against the church and so may well have been familiar perhaps with other moments where the Holy Spirit broke out and the standing response was, ah, oh, no, they're just under the influence of something. And so... There's an amazing link but to, to that first moment with the Holy Spirit and the response of the skeptics being, well, you're probably drunk, to then when Paul himself starts teaching on the Holy Spirit to a group of people in Ephesus. Um, 
this is a church that Paul loved a great deal. And he's starting to teach the, the, um, the Ephesians about being filled with this person, the Spirit. Um, and we're going to spend the rest of this conversation in the book of Ephesians. Uh, there's just some amazing stuff here. But let's go first to chapter 4 um, from verse 18 onwards. Um, Paul, I suppose, remembering the accusation that the disciples were drunk, says, don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Uh, instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Those last few lines just sound like the most beautiful way to live, to, to live with a heart that just makes music to the Lord and to live constantly giving thanks to the Father uh, in the name of Jesus, to be in community with one another, where you're always encouraging and uplifting each other, that just sounds beautiful. That sounds like the courageous community we want to be, right? So he starts by saying, well, don't get drunk on wine. That leads to, that's debauched. Instead, uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's not be all prudish and teetotal and think that the point that Paul is trying to make is don't drink wine. In fact, elsewhere, he tells Timothy expressly to drink wine. So the Bible's not anti the existence of alcohol. But I think it's amazing that Paul, in trying to describe the Holy Spirit, reaches for something to compare it to and discusses being filled with spirits. Um, you don't compare things unless they are in some significant ways similar and in other significant ways dissimilar. <clears throat> so there must be something about being drunk that is a useful starting point for a discussion about what it's like to be filled with this person, the Holy Spirit. Clearly, skeptics wrongly attributed Christian, Holy Spirit-filled living to being something like being drunk. Uh, and Paul, again, when he starts talking to the Ephesians about it, says, well, this is a better option than um, being dougie with. And so let's think about what being drunk is actually like. And I'm afraid I'm a bit of a nerd here. I don't have a whole host of personal experience on the topic. But from what I understand um, and from what I've heard, uh, there is, if we're honest, a certain amount of joy and courage and enthusiasm and, and relief from anxiety and release from inhibitions, I suppose, and that being drunk allows. There's a, yeah, there's a joy. Um, now, I, of course, we know that a lot of that is fake, um, that those... You know, drunk friends of ours who think they're being hugely unpredictable and hugely creative, or the sober person thinks the drunk person's being incredibly predictable. Um, but nevertheless, being drunk, being so removed or abstracted by the influence of alcohol is experienced as being uplifting and a relief from stress. And people speak about Dutch courage for a reason. But we know that the way alcohol achieves this is by acting as a depressant. Alcohol puts a great big fat filter between you and real life. Um, and that filter is so rose-tinted and so blurry and kind of soap opera-ish that the world starts to look rosy even when moments before it wasn't. And that's what's both really amazing and helpful about being drunk, I suppose, and also really unhelpful about being drunk at the same time. That the joy that it creates or the boldness that it creates or the warm feelings towards other people that it creates or the or the relief from anxiety and inhibitions that it creates, it creates by limiting our experience of reality, by cutting us off from the truth of the situation. 
not by helping us to see it more clearly. So if you've just lost your job, that is a scary situation to be faced with. Uh, you are right to be, to have that really grab your attention. Um, if the feeling of fear and anxiety that that causes um, gets too much, then alcohol might seem like a good idea. And at first it would seem like it's a good idea because you end up feeling all encouraged and all free. But actually you're only getting that way because your experience of reality is being limited to the point where you just forget the very serious things you're up against. And so we all know how that goes. If it's you've lost your job or you've just lost the love of your life, you end up at midnight taking your phone out and sending a text that you wish you hadn't sent the next day. Uh, you can't fire me. I quit. I don't need you and your rotten company. And it only makes the situation worse. Now, in what way is the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit similar to being drunk with wine. Well, up till now, we've been arguing that there is a, an amazing infusion of courage. And I suppose people who are filled with the Holy Spirit would seem fairly unpredictable and fairly intoxicated, I guess, to those watching on, that not only is there a sense of courage, but all these warm feelings towards others, towards your circumstances. Um, however, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that like alcohol does with escapism, where you simply see less of the world. I would argue that the Holy Spirit produces that same result by allowing you to see more of the world, by allowing you to have a better grasp on reality than you had before. Instead of trying to cover up the things that are making you afraid, the Holy Spirit turns on the floodlights to allow you to see other things that would cause you to feel less fear. That at first you might have looked at the circumstance and thought, I'm all on my own here and this is terrifying. And then the Holy Spirit flicks on the floodlights and you start to see the massed companies of heaven, the resources that are at your disposal. You, are, you have the character of God recalled to your mind. You're able to look at the genuine seriousness of your situation and instead of denying it, remind yourself, yeah, but also God provides. He loves me. That's my starting point. I'm chosen by him and called by him and loved by him. And not only do you get reminded of scripture, but the Holy Spirit reminds you of what God has done in your own life. And we're so incredibly good at forgetting testimonies of God's goodness in our own lives. It's incredible how hard it seems to be to remember the ways God has come through for us. And the Holy Spirit will remind you of that. But even more, and this is really important, even more than that, which is amazing uh, to have the truth of God and the truth of what he's done in your life reminded to you, the Holy Spirit also turns the floodlights on, allows you to see in greater detail what God might actually be up to in this circumstance, might give you supernatural insight into the motives of other people's hearts or the opportunities you might have to change course in that moment, available, you know, available grace, <laughs> that God has hidden grace in this circumstance, kind of, kind of unmerited favor is, is available if you'll be prepared to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit and discover it. And, and this is really a thing that God loves to get up to, is to, to conceal some glorious stuff in a situation and then ask you to trust Him enough and pay Him enough attention <clears throat> and be led by the Spirit enough to discover what it is that He's up to in that circumstance. That's all very wonderful. So, so this being drunk on the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being swept up into this really encouraging, really potent way of living that Peter you know, gave us an example of in that moment. That sounds awesome. Some of you might be sitting there going, okay, well, I just don't think I'm really one of those Christians. That all still sounds a little 
sketchy to me. Okay, great. Thank you for telling me that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a force that maybe will start the ball rolling. But still, I'm just a bit too much of a thinker. I'm just too much of a practical person. I'm not sure I'm one of these Holy Spirit Christians. That's sort of hippy-dippy. Happy clappy stuff is for the Christians who are predisposed to those kinds of things. Who, If it weren't for church, would be, I don't know, staring deeply into a certain kind of bush and the smoke that it produces and finding that very spiritual or polishing crystals and hanging them over their beds or, you know, whatever other kind of weird new agey, you know, they're just some people who are more predisposed to the invisible, supernatural, spiritual things of this world. Um, and others of us who, you know, would say, as I say, I'm a bit practical. I'm a bit heady. I don't know about this Holy Spirit stuff. Can I not just be a sort of less Holy Spirity Christian? Well, seeing as we're talking about Ephesians and we've started in Ephesians, let's just recycle back to some of the first Ephesians that Paul ever meets because they are in the exact same camp as you if you're one of those skeptical, I'm keen to be a Christian without doing the Holy Spirit stuff kind of people. It's, um, it's an anecdote out of Acts 19. Um, and it's amazing because Paul ends up encountering some Ephesians who would be in the audience Later on, when the letter to the Ephesian church is being read out, you can be sure. So this is quite a cool little uh, connection to, to some of the people that Paul was writing to. Acts 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. This is important. So this starts by identifying these people as believers. In other words, they think they are Christians. If SARS asks them what religion, they will tick the Christian box on the form. <clears throat> so Paul says, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit to these people who would identify themselves as believers? And they say, no, uh, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, asks Paul. And they reply with the baptism of John. Paul says, oh, no, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. Now, no doubt these people do believe in Jesus. They've heard about him. They think he's probably God. Um, they've got the right information, but they haven't encountered the Holy Spirit. And so from verse 5, as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 of them. This starts out being a story about some believers who are not really aware of the Holy Spirit stuff. And yet the second Paul discovers that they don't know about the Holy Spirit, his response is to say, I need you to convert you into being Christians, which he duly does. Now that is pretty earth shattering for those people. Just think about what that would mean. Paul is saying that there's no such thing as normal Christians and Holy Spirit Christians. There are just Holy Spirit Christians. The other thing might be information about God, but that's not actually a relationship with him. You may well be at the foothills of that kind of normal Christianity. You, you may be one of the folks who, you know, often when someone first starts speaking in tongues, and when you see tongues mentioned in the Bible, <clears throat> what's being described is almost always a prayer language that no one else can understand. Occasionally, in amazing circumstances, people who speak other languages that you don't speak are able to understand what you're saying as you pray in tongues. But um, that does seem to be the exception as opposed to the norm. Um, 
and many of us, as we get started praying in this language that the Holy Spirit gives us, uh, which has, can I just say, the great advantage of being something that you both do consciously. You choose to speak in tongues. You know, the Holy Spirit, once again, not some force, doesn't just take over your mouth and start flapping your gums and moving your tongue for you. No, you consciously speak this language, but it has the great advantage of being a language that you yourself don't understand. And so the, the innermost cries of your soul get to go straight to God <clears throat> without having to be filtered, I suppose, um, through the mother tongue that you speak. They have to take first these internal yearnings and, and fears and cries and praises that you want to offer to God and then make them conscious enough for you to find the correct vocabulary for them, for you to then express them to God in your mother tongue, Afrikaans, Zulu, English, whatever that might be, is a rational and quite limiting process. And so tongues is this amazing opportunity to just speak from the deepest part of yourself directly to God. But many people um, who are beginning that process feel a little insecure about the fact that oh, I think I only kind of have one word and I just repeat the same, you know, immature sounding refrain over and over. Is it me? Is it not? That's okay. Um, you know, when Paul lays his hands on these guys, not only do they start to speak in tongues, they also start to prophesy. And I know many people who are on the foothills of that kind of normal Christian living, beginning to prophesy, wondering, am I right about this, that I think I know about this person, or am I not? Because prophecy is essentially an opportunity for you to eavesdrop on the thoughts of God about the circumstance that you're in. It's not necessarily predicting the future. It may well be just a word of encouragement, a specific idea that God has for this person, something that is in God's heart for them. And so as you pray to God about this person, you get a sense, you eavesdrop on what it is he would be saying to them if they could hear him for themselves. And yeah, it, it may be backdated as opposed to some kind of soothsaying of the future. But when prophecy begins, it often feels a little cumbersome, a little like shots in the dark. And is this just my own kind of natural discernment that's just picking up on something that I possibly know about this person anyway? And, um, you know, I know that time after time, people who are beginning to prophesy just need to be encouraged. If it's edifying, if it's encouraging, go for it. Like, like what's the worst that can happen? If you, if it's in line with what you know God would be saying to this person, then just have a, have a will. And what I'm saying is you can be on the foothills of that kind of Christianity, just getting started and praying in tongues, just getting started prophesying, just getting started allowing the Holy Spirit to turn the, the lamp on in your life. The foothills are fine. The point is that destination is normal Christian living involves the Holy Spirit. There is no other kind of Christianity. There is no other way to follow Jesus than to have accepted the Holy Spirit's huge, unavoidable role in that. And what would be dreadful, I mean, you're welcome to be at this church and not be a Christian. You can come here as long as you like. This church is perfect for people who aren't Christians. The most terrifying thing is to think you're a Christian, only to discover that you're not. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. A bunch of people tick that box in the size form, think they're believers, they know about Jesus. They've even repented from sin. They've even believed that he's God. But without connecting to the Holy Spirit, without allowing the Holy Spirit to begin to do the supernatural stuff inside you, there is simply nothing Christian about that. It's possible to infer from creation information about the Father. It's possible to study the scriptures and discern information about Jesus, but it is only through the Holy Spirit 
that it's actually possible to know him. Tim Keller would say that it's the Holy Spirit who makes God real to us. That's it. And if we take a quick tour through Ephesians, and we could probably do this through many other books, uh, Galatians, etc., um, you will start to see that this is not just some crackpot idea that I've come up with or stolen from Tim Keller. Um, let's start to see, it's easy to skim over the role that the Holy Spirit is playing because you see that word in Scripture often and you just start to assume it's like some you know, crutch phrase that the writers use. But let's just, for the sake of argument, have a look through the few chapters that have just come before chapter 4 in Ephesians where Paul kind of climaxes by saying, don't get drunk on wine, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person in the Trinity, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know Him better. Paul's asking that God would give people in Ephesus the Spirit so that they can know God. The corollary to that, or the, or the opposite of that, would be to say, without the Spirit, you can't know God better. Chapter 2 from verse 18. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. Your immediate answer to that might be, oh, but I thought we get to the Father through the Son, that it's through the Son. Yeah, legally speaking, you're absolutely right. It's because of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have access to the Father, legally speaking. But mechanically speaking, for want of a better term, it's by the Spirit in this physical realm in which we live. The access point, the mechanism by which we get to the Father is by the Spirit invoking the legal right we have to do so that Jesus the Son bought for us. So from verse 18 again, for through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. And now Paul's going to start to describe what this household looks like. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. Once again, that's a great link back to Peter's first um, rereading of the of the prophet Isaiah, that this is Jesus' role in the, the building. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This church, the community of believers on earth, are called a temple, a holy temple dwelling for God, right? Well, yes, but with one specific caveat. And in him, I'm reading from verse 22, uh, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So churches that get together around right teaching, right doctrine, right structures, who believe the right things, who speak the right things, who go through the motions of doing the right things, who know about Jesus, know about the Father. If we are not prepared to allow the Holy Spirit in, we are not allowing God in. Verse 22, let's hear it again. You two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. God only lives in this church by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 16, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is a huge idea. It is simply not possible for you to have faith in Christ. It's not possible for you to have Christ living in you 
outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. So we've already seen that it's the Holy Spirit who allows us to know the Father better. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us access to the Father. It's the Holy Spirit who is the mechanism by which God dwells in our church. God is only in this church if the Holy Spirit's in this church. Chapter 3, verse 16 has just said, you only get Christ in your heart. You only have that experience both of saving faith and then of intimacy with Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. Nobody else. Chapter 4, verse 23. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. No attending of freedom in Christ. No preaching of passages to yourself about your new identity will actually change your thoughts and attitudes. It's the Spirit who will change your thoughts and attitudes. Phew. So what just this quick whistle stop is showing us is what Tim Keller said in the beginning. It is the Holy Spirit who makes God real to us. You can't know Him better without the Holy Spirit. You don't have access to the Father without the Holy Spirit. You don't have the presence of God or any kind of dwelling of God in the church and in the community of the saints unless it's the Holy Spirit that's doing that. You don't get God in your heart unless it's the Holy Spirit that's doing that. You don't even get to change. Your attitudes and thoughts don't even get to be renewed unless it's the Holy Spirit that's doing that. So, in conclusion... (laughs) to this part of the sermon. Paul turns up in Ephesus, meets meets a bunch of believers who don't know the Holy Spirit, and his response is, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christianity. Elsewhere in the New Testament, some of you might be remembering the fact that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is pretty much the only thing you can't come back from, and it makes sense in light of this. If you decide that the Holy Spirit is not really God, not really for you, you you're essentially putting yourself outside of relationship with God. So, if we're going to be filled with, with the Holy Spirit, if we're going to allow Him to turn the lights on and make us brave and empower what we do and connect us to God, what do we have to do? How do we get filled with Him? Well, that's a great question to ask. So let's go back to chapter 4, but just start a few verses before the conversation about drunkenness. Paul from verse 15 of chapter 4 of Ephesians says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit, etc., etc. Be very careful then how you live. That's how Paul starts a conversation about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He starts talking about our lifestyles, about us being careful about what we do. That's interesting. In In what way should we be careful how we live if we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Let's go a little further in chapter 4. From verse 30, Don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He's identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. That's a really reassuring place to start, because what's about to follow, I don't take any pleasure really in reading. Um, It's beautiful and good for us because it's in Scripture. But as a community, to listen to what we're about to hear Paul say can be uncomfortable. And yet it's really helpful to see that he starts by reaffirming. If you were even able to own Jesus as God, if you're even able to believe the gospel at all, then we already know that it's the Holy Spirit at work in you. You already have some measure of the Holy Spirit at work in you if you're able to understand the gospel and believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Be encouraged by that. Remember, he's identified you as his own, that little experience that you've already have of the Holy Spirit, that's a guarantee, that's a down payment is another way Paul describes it elsewhere, that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So Paul is speaking to saved people here and he is reassuring them. 
But still, he's about to tell us how not to bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. From verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I've rolled into chapter 5. Continuing on, Paul says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Sure. So, we need to be really careful here. Paul starts by saying, don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. We've, We've been told just moments before, be careful how you live if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he then goes on to list some ways that we shouldn't live and some ways that we should. And the reason we have to be careful about this is because the whole body of Scripture, the whole point of the gospel, is that how you live doesn't matter, right? That your performance isn't the point. That Jesus' performance on your behalf is the point. That your salvation has nothing to do with how good you are. And that's so important. That's absolutely true. This does nothing to remove that idea or diminish the truth of that. If anything, this should actually enhance that idea because right at the beginning, remember, Paul says, don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live because he's identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. So Paul is speaking to people who are saved and are saved not at all based on their own works or performance. And yet he finishes by saying, obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, they're not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. So the first thing we have to note, and this is a big idea that I can only just tell you, I can't really prove this to you in this, in the amount of time we have, but inherit the kingdom of God cannot be the same as be saved from eternal separation from God and have eternal life with him. It simply can't be the same. That can't be what's at stake. If Paul starts by saying you have a guarantee in the person of the Holy Spirit that you will be saved and then goes on to warn those same people who he's just said are guaranteed to be saved that they may or may not inherit the kingdom of God depending on how they live. Inheritance, whenever you see it in the New Testament, speaks about your experience of the blessing of the kingdom of God on earth It's not referring to your eternal destination. And this is going to open up passages in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, all over the New Testament. If we start to understand that what's not at stake is your salvation. But what is at stake is how much of the bliss of living in the kingdom, in the jurisdiction, in the order and paradise of where God rules, how much of that you inherit on earth absolutely has to do with the way you live. Absolutely. And a big part of the inheritance that the children of God can experience or expect is the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit of God is one of the huge things we inherit. And He then brings so much more of the kingdom of God to life for us, shines the spotlight, you know, empowers, makes us brave, gives us gifts, gives us insights. 
releases healing, releases all kinds of amazing stuff. So much of the experience of the kingdom of God on earth is mediated through the mechanism of the Holy Spirit, probably all of it, you'd argue. And so if we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if we're going to inherit the full measure of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God, then the way we live does come back into view. The way you live, the your performance, your goodness or badness is not in view when we're talking about your salvation. It's not in view when we're talking about how much you matter to God, how much He loves you, you're standing with Him. You, you are not on trial when it comes to those things at all. But Paul says to people he loves, oh, guys, be careful how you live. Think carefully. Be wise. Don't be foolish. Make some good choices about the way you live if you want to inherit the kingdom of God on earth and experience more of the Holy Spirit. And the way this works, oh, I want to teach you, I want to show you the way this works, because this is fascinating. This is not some huge moral exercise where you have to suddenly get really, really brilliant at saying no to temptation. I'm not a particularly self-controlled person or a hugely disciplined person. I, I, I would be lying to try and claim to be some hero of self-discipline. The way this works, let's just go to the last thing Paul mentions, course joking. Here's how this would go. Now, everyone I know who does coarse joking, who drops in toilet humor, who does the shock factor stuff. The reason they're doing it, it's a power play every time. Um, forgive me for oversimplifying, but if I'm going to do some kind of obscene joke or coarse language, the reason I'm doing that is to try and put the pe- my hearers on the back foot to shock them to some extent, uh, to get them feeling awkward or, or insecure, and I'm busy showing off how free and how edgy I am, uh, and it's attention-seeking. It's a power play for the sake of, of attention. Now, if I'm going to walk in step with the Spirit, if I'm going to be careful how I live in order to inherit more of the kingdom of God, then what Paul is asking us to do, I think, is to just in that moment, when I want to do the thing I normally do, cause joking in this instance, it's just to go, okay, well, if I want to experience more of the Holy Spirit, if I want to give the Holy Spirit more access to my life, if that's what being filled with the Holy Spirit means. And I know the Holy Spirit loves Jesus and loves the same things Jesus loves and is already starting to prompt me about what he loves and doesn't love. And if I'm not sure about that, well, I can just go and read the list that Paul has given me. And, oh, yeah, okay, so Paul said, course, joking. That's not for me. Okay, I'm just going to try and hold my tongue for a second. I'm just going to, you know, this isn't, I'm not talking about some kind of massive effort of self-discipline, but just in that moment, I'm going to go, okay, I'm not going to do that. Holy Spirit, what do you have for me instead of this course joking that I'd like to do? And then, time after time, my experience and the witness of Scripture is that as you do that, as you make that choice, as you're careful how you live, the Holy Spirit turns the lights on. The Holy Spirit starts to illuminate Jesus. And the glorious thing about this and about all morality in Christian living, it's not about white-knuckling or being hugely holy or being hugely impressive. It's about simply having the, your wits about you enough to pause and choose away from your flesh and instead do what you think the Spirit wants you to do. He turns the lights on. And what does he always turn the lights on to? What does he always show you? What does he always illuminate and bring into sharp focus and vivid contrast? Jesus. He shows you Jesus. And when I used to need to do coarse joking as a power play to receive attention, the Holy Spirit lights up Jesus. I'm aware, not just in my head, but I experience the truth of the fact that I have his full attention, that I'm interesting to him, and suddenly I don't need to do any coarse joking any longer. It's not for me. And what I used to have to try to resist out of some kind of moral or self-disciplined effort fades 
into the background. No longer becomes very desirable. The floodlight is on. The other stuff is no longer interesting. And I see Jesus and I see what I mean to him and what he can mean to me. And the thing that I used to think I needed to scratch whatever itch no longer seems like a very good idea. You can apply the same logic to everything on this list. Let's go one back. Um, Paul speaks about sexual immorality. Paul speaks about greed. Paul speaks about gossip. Gossip's an interesting one. Every time I know of people gossiping, the goal there, I think, is connection. It's the illusion of connection to another person. We're going to gossip about a third person not in the room, and we're going to reassure one another as we do this that we both think the same uh, and have the same judgments. Uh, And one of the ridiculous things about gossip is that often once the ball is rolling and and there's some momentum to it, two people are busy flaying someone else about things that possibly they don't actually agree on. Um, But because we have now got this sort of psychological social contract with one another that we're going to agree, one person's flaming person X for some trait, and the other one in the conversation up until then probably never even bothered or cared about that. But now it's, oh, yeah, I can't believe it. You're absolutely right. What an idiot. Um, And what we're doing as we gossip with one another is using the third person as a scapegoat. We are reassuring one another that we have some kind of false, exaggerated connection to each other. The irony, obviously, is that if you're gossiping with someone, then even at a subconscious level, you've got to be smart enough to know that if they'll gossip with you about person X, then when you're not in the room, you may well be person X. This is not real human connection. Gossip does not actually strengthen relationships. Um, However, it gives us the illusion of connection in that moment. So if I'm aware that the Holy Spirit is not into gossip, um, not because I have to, not because I'm scared God's going to judge me, not because if I gossip, he'll love me less. No, 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 no. He loves me loads. Paul starts chapter 5 by saying, imitate God because you're his dear children, not to make yourself his dear children, not to earn your way in. Because you're his dear children, you get to behave like him. You don't have to do this other stuff that's not good for you. And so in that moment, I go, okay, well, I don't want to gossip. Holy Spirit, I'm going to choose away from my flesh. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be careful how I live. I'm going to try to hold back from the gossip in just this moment. And it's so delicious. And it does seem to offer such great connection with this person in this moment. And to be the prude who's saying, oh, no, let's not talk about them while they're not in the room. It's going to, it seems like it's going to limit this friendship. But as you do that, and you do your best to walk in step with the Spirit, just for that instant or two, the floodlights turn on. He shows you Jesus in all his vivid glorious, living color. And you realize that you have intimacy with him, that you are connected to him, that he is the ultimate relationship that you need. And that as you work in tandem with him, your options and opportunities for great relationships on earth are enhanced, not limited. And if not gossiping with this person is going to limit this friendship, it wasn't a friendship you needed in the first place. And you become so secure in your relationship with Jesus that the threat of limiting this friendship no longer holds any sting. See, this is how all Christian moral living works. It doesn't work out of huge effort, but it does take some effort. And that effort is not to try and earn God's love or try to prove that you're better than someone else or try to somehow clean up your act before you dare turn up a church or life group or think you're fit to have the Holy Spirit inside you. No, it's the opposite of that. It's fallen people with all the wrong desires and the wrong habits and the wrong addictions going, well, I'm just going to try to walk and step with the Spirit to the degree that I'm able. And I already know that the fact that I even believe in Jesus at all means that I have the Holy Spirit. And that's such a wonderful, ennobling, honoring guarantee that I am saved and chosen by by God. And 
that gives me the confidence to just have a go at walking in step with the Spirit. And as I do that, I'm going to allow Him to illuminate my life, the all-satisfying, glorious person of Jesus Christ. And it is impossible, friends, it is impossible to be staring at Jesus and seeing Him for who He really is and simultaneously to choose something that He doesn't love. Because those other things just aren't as exciting when you're seeing Him floodlit. Just as we close, um, you know, it's interesting the way the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture. Because uh, as much as he's a person, as we've said, he does do some odd stuff. Um, he has some strange effects. And so you'll see the Holy Spirit described sometimes as a fire or as an anointing oil or, or a wind, etc. Um, but one of the most amazing things to me is that the way the Holy Spirit is described when Jesus is first baptized and filled with him is as a dove. And doves are skittish, aren't they? Doves are difficult to to keep near to you. They can be easily chased away. And um, if this idea of being careful how we live and walking deliberately in step with the Spirit can be likened to anything, it's been likened famously by Bill Johnson to walking around with a dove on your shoulder. How would you walk if you were walking around with a dove on your shoulder? Well, you'd be sensitive to the dove. You'd be thinking about the dove all the time. And that's the call of Ephesians 4 and 5, I think is to choose to walk sensitive to the Spirit. And the result of that will be like some kind of glorious drunkenness, where we are more courageous, not less, where we are more free, not less, where we are more enthusiastic and spontaneous, not less, where we have far less to fear, where we are far less inhibited. But the way we get there is not by seeing less of the world, by having our senses dimmed and our reactions slowed. No, the way we get there is by seeing more of the world, by seeing God for who He really is, by seeing yourself for who you really are, by seeing the world you live in and all the opportunities that are available to you and the graces that God has provisioned for you, to be able to see them in the supernatural ways that the Holy Spirit allows you to see them. And I just reminded of another example of inheriting the kingdom of God on earth, right? Like Burn and I, when we choose to walk in step with the Spirit, in our marriage. That means that we choose to treat one another the way the Holy Spirit is leading us to treat one another, not how our fallen flesh might lead us to treat one another. When we do that, it's bliss. It's beautiful. When I'm treating her the way I know God wants me to treat her, the way the Holy Spirit is empowering me to treat her, and when she's treating me the way the Holy Spirit is empowering her to treat me, we taste a little bit of heaven on earth. But when we don't, we don't taste heaven on earth at all. Anyone will know that marriage can very quickly descend into something not like heaven at all. And um, that's what's available to us, is that we get to inherit more of the kingdom of God and of Christ on earth right now as we choose to walk in step with the Spirit and to be empowered by this amazing legal aid, this incredible emboldener, this wonderful floodlight who's going to bring into sharp relief the actual truth that you need to be seeing in your life. And not just bring clarity, but bring power to the things that you do. That's what we're going to chase after as a community. And that's what we're looking forward to the Wednesday that immediately follows the Sunday that, that the sermon was preached. And so if you're hearing this podcast in time, I would really recommend, I mean, you just don't have anything else as important on, on Wednesday, the 29th of January, as coming to make space in your life to meet the Holy Spirit, possibly for the first time. God bless you. I hope this has been helpful. Chat soon.